Hi everyone, welcome to our third episode of Cloudy Business. There is so much we are learning about this subject and I don't know about you guys, but I'm definitely having so much fun along the way. So far, we have covered some of the basics such as challenges organizations may face when they start their journey to migration, different migration models we can adhere to, and also where all this might be heading towards to in the near future, but there's still much more to cover. Today, I have the pleasure to talk to Chris Lawrence. Chris has been working on technology for 20 years now. He started his journey at UBM, currently known as Informa, to then join IBM to work on cloud-related projects. For the last three years, Chris is part of the Portfolio BI team, working on the design, implementation, and migration of infrastructures and data from either prem or private cloud into public cloud environments. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Very good, thank you, Roshni. Thank you for having me. Not at all. So first of all, before we get started, will you mind to tell us more about your area of specialism within cloud migration services? Yeah, of course. So within Portfolio BI, I work in the uh, managed services wing. And I work for the professional services part of that. We hook up with clients that are potentially wanting to migrate their resources or services or even data to the cloud. And we work with them in their journey to try and design, do some discovery to ensure that we capture all of the requirements. And then we will look to um, present them some sort of solution for that. And we'll then also handhold them through that process into the implementation and the handover into their day-to-day services. Okay. When you mean handholding through the implementation process, do you mean from a technical point of view or from a more like a project management point of view or both? So, so we cover both. So we have a, an internal project management team and they work, they're quite technical savvy. So they work alongside the engineers and the architects within the firm. And we would handle the entire process. So obviously with the stakeholders being the clients, we would ensure that the, the project is managed. Um, but also from the technical point of view, that's where my role comes in. So so let me tell you something. Since we have started sharing with our clients at Penn, the services we offer around cloud, cloud migration and optimization, those conversations have actually driven a lot of the questions that I will be asking you today. So first question that comes to my head straight away. When organizations are moving to the cloud, what do you think are the key outcomes they should be looking to achieve when moving to the cloud? Or let me ask, ask you in a slightly different way. What should be the reason for a company to move to the cloud? Okay, it's a good question. So I think initially a lot of um, clients and companies, uh, whether they be our sort of uh, asset managers or um, funds come to us, uh, or whether it be any other sector as well, they, they're initially looking potentially to to save money, to have costs. That's a big driver for them. And I think that that is... That is um, it's an important piece, but I think that it's a misnomer that you can necessarily save those costs immediately. So I think that um, the actual migration piece can sometimes look a little daunting from a cost point of view. But once the dust settles, you can start leveraging some of the, um, like the pass offerings, for instance, within platform service, sorry, um, within the, the different cloud offerings. And that's where you start saving the money because you're you're only sort of paying for things as you're using them. So, so that's one thing that people look at, but it's not necessarily the biggest driver. I think also simplicity. So trying to simplify their structure. Now you can do that. When you're on premise, you can go through that process. But if you're going to go through all that process, you know, it's sometimes better to look at the bigger picture and think where you want your infrastructure to be in the next 10 years time. And so that's one big driver for people is to try and simplify that, but also get to that place where they're in the cloud 
which is the next point, the flexibility, really. So that's the ability to sort of flex up, flex down, rather than having large infrastructure costs, so costs for hardware or even licenses, really. If you are unsure of where your company is going, either sort of expanding or, or decreasing, that is a lot easier to do when you're in a cloud environment where everything is built on a monthly um, basis. And then I think that that also sort of hooks in nicely to another big uh, advantage of being in the cloud, which is when you're going through expansions and acquisitions, that's a huge advantage to be on a, a central platform where you can migrate that data without having to worry about physical locations of that data. So different data centers, different offices, et cetera. That's a huge thing. And I know that Penn are actually going to be going through that sort of thing with Wavestone, which is the combination that you've you've recently entered into. So mm -hmm. that's something which, you know, all companies are trying to, to look at and sort of future-proof. If they want to expand, it's a lot easier if it's on a cloud platform. Okay. Thank you. And I think one, sorry to interrupt, but one other massive thing is for the transparency. And I think this is something which not, is not necessarily a big driver. So people don't realize that they want it. But when they actually do end up on the cloud platform, they can see exactly where they're spending their money. So if they're running, you know, 200 VMs or whatever, they know where that money is being spent. They know which division is spending it. So they can then re rebuild that out to the various divisions. And that's a hugely powerful tool. Interesting. When you started listing the outcomes, right, your, your first outcome was money saving. And the last one is then the money that you start spending, you can actually easily track it and see where the money is going to. So if we go back for a second to the saving cost, if you don't mind to share with me, one of the questions uh, a client actually asked me last week was, yes, certainly I have to cough up a lot of money, spend a lot of money to, to move to the cloud or to optimize the way I am currently sitting on the cloud. What are the, the measurements, the, the, how we can monitor and track that effectively money is being saved? Because you did mention that the money saving will not be evident and visible straight away. Time has to go before we realize that we are saving money. But how we can actually monitor and measure that the money is being saved, maybe on, on the three main parameters that you can think of. Well, I think the, the, the biggest thing is about having complete control over your data. So let, let's take data as an example. So you have a huge store of data. And for instance, if you're on-prem, you've got to store that data somewhere. So you have a huge array or a SAN or something which is storing that data. Now that is considered, you know, what we would we would term hot storage. So it's storage which is there. You can have some tiering within that storage, but generally speaking, it's effectively hot storage. So you pay a lot of money for having that and hosting it. Um, if we talk about the different cloud offerings, whichever platform you be, they have mechanisms to be able to tier that data better. So you can have that data held in cold storage, which is storage that just allows you access if it's an emergency. If you need to access it, then you know you can have access to it. But it's not data that you're accessing day in, day out, every minute of the day. And so you're not paying those higher prices for storing that data. So that's a good example of where you can start saving money. And I think even just the transparency of it helps you do that because it allows you to identify where the money's being spent. And that alone is very powerful to be able to you know, see which systems are, are, are gobbling up the data, for instance, or using all of the compute so that you can then address it and say, well, is there a better way of doing this? Or is there a better like service that we can take up, like a cloud native service? So I think all of those things, you know, feed into visibility and understanding it better than just 
a data center with physical servers or, you know, even EMX servers or something like that hosting VMs. Okay. Now that you're talking about data, with government mandates all over this topic, trying to ensure that data is controlled and secure, no wonder why developing and implementing a data strategy is a critical success factor at this point. What is your view on data protection and data governance strategy for a migration scenario? So I think with the uh, the governance, a lot of the governance is, is around, you know, protection and control of that data. And within the migration, you have to bear that in mind. So it's not just a case of migrating live data and then protecting it going forward. You also have to think about the data that has been there. So that could be backups of servers which have data on them. It could be, you know, mailboxes archived. So all of that information and those sort of the protection of that data has to be translated during that migration process. So I think, you know, we, we have to work hard on ensuring that we transfer that data and then we protect it with the same sort of protections that we would, whether it be a, a DLP, a data loss protection policy. We need to make sure that we're protecting it in the same way so that it can be proven that we are protecting it, basically. Okay, so taking that into account, let's talk about GDPR, right, as a data protection policy. Does GDPR conflict in any way with hosting data in the cloud? I don't think it necessarily does. I think you have the same challenges, whether you're on-premise or in the cloud. GDPR is primarily about, you know, protecting identifiable personal data. So anything that can can be linked back to a particular person's identity, that, that's what it's about, really. And I think that when you're working in the cloud, you know, there are offerings which allow you to help with actually managing that data and protecting it. So, I mean, I can give you an example from Microsoft. So they, they have something called Purview, which is uh, identity protection. It used to be called Azure Identity Protection. And what that does is it allows you to start trying to protect that data and identify those, those particular key personal identifiable information and start flagging it and start protecting it. So if it identifies it, if it spots it, you can have patterns. It could be even, you know, particular information about certain clients that you want to make sure has that protection and that you can then go and identify it and report over it. And then if necessary, they also need you to be able to remove that data if somebody requests it. So they, they have these tools within the, the cloud offerings, the platforms that allow you to better identify and report over it. They also have dashboards which allow you to sort of see the your status, as it were. So whether you are conforming to what you believe you are. So you have ways of actually being able to present that and justify it in a sense. You did mention about Azure data protection. Am I right to, to assume that Google as well as Amazon offer similar services around data protection as well? Yes, I believe they do. I mean, personally, I, I'm very much focused around Microsoft, but Portfolio BI are agnostic, so we have clients in all the different platforms. But yes, each each of the vendors have their own ways of protecting it. And to be honest, there's also a hundred other third parties that that offer similar things, you know, these data vaults and protection. So, you know, Microsoft's not the only people out there doing it. It's just that if you're in that micro Microsoft ecosystem, you know, it's built in and it allows you that. Uh, integration into various Office 365 products. Do you get many inquiries from clients, especially at earlier stages of an engagement, uh, where they actually are concerned about data protection? I think every client, when we're speaking to them, is is concerned about it. So, 
you know, I think if you'd have if you'd have asked the same question probably three five years ago, it would have been a lot a lot more difficult to be able to put these clients at ease about the actual technologies that are there and the protections that are in place. You know, particularly the industry that we work in, in the finance industry, it's been a, a long journey to to get that acceptance. But I think that once the the first few got there and they did it well, you, I mean, you mentioned previously that there are clients that don't do it well. So they they attempt it and they end mm-hmm. up in a lot of trouble because one big thing about any of these systems is that to get there is one thing, but to actually configure these platforms correctly to be a secure platform is a completely different story. So there's a lot more effort that goes into the actual securing than just the sort of getting data from one place to another. Do you feel that there is a bit of hesitation uh, from regulators now that everyone pretty much is moving to the cloud? And especially when we when we are hosting client-sensitive data in the cloud, do you think regulations have, are more restricted around this? I think they're certainly becoming more strict. I think that the, the pandemic brought in a situation where everybody had to find a different way of working. And, you know, that accelerated. And a good example, I guess, of that is there's a lot of talk at the moment about how communications are done for trades and so on. So that all ha- it's all very highly regulated and it has to be monitored and recorded and so on. So any, any communication regarding it needs to be recorded. And there's a lot of sort of chat about now how during that pandemic period, some banks and traders were reverting to WhatsApp to send messages. And obviously that's completely unregulated, you know, it's it's something which is not being recorded. So that's a good example of how, you know, the technology, when the pandemic hit, there were needs must, you know, people had to get on with things. But I think regulators are now really cracking down on that. And they're trying to ensure that we're at least back to that position where, you know, they, they were used to having a, a very traditional trading environment where everything was monitored. When you start spreading the people that are working for you out into their homes, there's that division which isn't there anymore. And and I think that's something which they're trying to catch up with as well. And they will do. So, you know, as as a, as a consultancy, well, not consult, well, we are consultancy, but we have to work with our clients to make sure that we're ahead of that game. So whether that be introducing recording of those WhatsApp messages or whether it be trying to provide them with a different solution. You know, that's our challenge, really. Well, surely I'm thinking what's up within financial services. Uh, I don't think I've seen that. Well, and you shouldn't have. That's the thing. But there are some big banks that are, you know, are now coming coming under some fairly serious fines for actually having that communication on private devices or having it within WhatsApp, which isn't recorded. Interesting. I definitely will be looking into this a bit more. Okay, so let's change the tone a bit now. We have heard many times that a cloud migration process should be seen as an opportunity to look and evaluate our existing applications and maybe think about redesigning some of them to make them fitter for, for the cloud or to say that in a in a bit more like a fancy way uh, to make them more cloud native. Basically, a chance to review some of our investments as they may relate to the new cloud architecture that we're trying to put in place. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, it's a good question. So we, I mean, we at Portfolio BI, when we're engaging with a with a new client, we would always try to identify any areas that we can refactor. That's what you know. That's the, effectively the terminology for it, and, and and that's for for a number of reasons. And it's a good time to do it when you're actually migrating. Like we said before, rather than taking old infrastructure and just 
passing it from one place to another. It's a great opportunity to take that step, spend a little bit more time, invest some effort into trying to make things like your terminology more cloud native. So some are easier to do than others. You know, there's things that are maybe first ports of core. If you're looking at a, an application stack or something like that, then you know, maybe look at the databases. So databases is a great example. Rather than having a server that's that's running your own database, look at the, the offering. So whether that be RDS from Amazon or whether it be SQL managed databases or managed instances in, in Azure, all of those, those offerings will give you just, a, and it comes back to the cost saving really in some points, but also they're a lot better to maintain because you don't have to worry about them. So any features or security updates, it's all handled by the, the cloud provider. So you don't have to you don't have to worry about that. And also they often offer more robust like DR scenarios or situations. So instead of having a, a SQL cluster, for instance, on premise, you know, they have a SQL managed instance in Azure, which is replicated across different regions. It's automatically handled for you. So it's just a it's a lot simpler to manage. That's just one example. You know, there's other, and and obviously in that scenario, it may mean that you don't need quite as as many database administrators, for instance. You know, you still need to have some because you're still managing the actual structure of the database. But the maintenance of the actual server and service is is out of your hands then, which is great. Other things, I guess, if you look at automation and workflows, so there's another good saving. I think I mentioned it before that by trying to translate those into things like, I think AWS calls it step functions and Azure's logic apps. By using those those sorts of things, you can actually string together your processes and then you're only paying for, for systems while you're using them. So while they're running, rather than having a server that sat there dedicated to these things, which 90% of the time is doing nothing, and you're still paying for it. So that's another great reason why you would try and do that refactoring up front. Do you pay a fee for the extra capacity that you can use, even though you're not using it? The fact that you've got the capacity to go further in the usage of the applications, can you, do you, do you usually pay an extra fee for that part? You mean in a traditional setup or in a, a pass sort of? In a um, pass cloud? sort of. Yeah, so, I mean, generally speaking, you, you would you would pay while it's running. So, for instance, if you have a workflow process, mm -hmm. whichever cloud environment it's in, you pay for it to be run. So you pay a certain fee for it to run. You know, if it's doing more, it's running longer, you know, you'll pay for that for longer. So the, the cost will, will go up. But if you compare that to a, a traditional infrastructure environment, you have a server that's running there and that's just sat there for six hours until the next time it has to run a process and then it runs. But it still has to have that capacity, whether it be, you know, the, the CPU or the memory to be mm -hmm. able to process those jobs. And that's sat there all the time. You're paying for it all the time. So that's where the saving can come in by using those sorts of things. How do you usually find when you are explaining, for example, this part of the of the pricing model or the cost model to non-technical people within your clients? Is this understood? Do you think like people, yes, quite, they get it, but not quite? What is your experience on, in general, talking about any technical aspects of a cloud yeah. migration? Let me broaden the question. When you talk about any technical aspect of a cloud migration with non-technical stakeholders. You make a really good point because it's quite difficult. Overall, they understand the concept of it. You know, they understand the fact that if you run something for longer, you pay more money. You know, if you're running something all the time, you're running it, you're paying for it. If you're not, you're not. They get that. But it's much more difficult to then 
do effectively a comparison to say, well, how much is it going to cost me to run this? There's so many factors involved there that you you have to you have to really understand what they're doing to be able to then give them some estimate as to as to how much it's going to cost and therefore how much it's going to save them during that migration process. It is difficult, and like I say, the more information you know about their systems and how they run, the better it is. There are tools that can assist you with that. If for instance, if you're going from cloud to cloud, for instance, you can use the the metrics that they provide within the cloud, the the, the sort of the outgoing cloud, to then design it in, in the new cloud. You do have those sorts of things on hypervisors internally, but it may not be something which is in your control because it could be in a hosting data center or something like that. So it is difficult, but you can normally get some estimate and show that there there is a benefit to actually going through that process. But having said that, there may be some re-engineering involved in doing that. So they may need to recode things and then that becomes then an extra cost. So it is, you know, it is a sort of a, a ways and measures, really. You have to really think about it and weigh it up. OK, OK. I'm going to change slightly the tone again. I'm thinking about a survey that got published no long ago, published by O'Reilly, and they were stating that almost 88% of the organizations are in the cloud in one way or another. AWS is by far the cloud leader here, followed by Azure and then Google Cloud. But most of the people that are either way in Azure and Google, they're also at least partially with AWS. Any views on why AWS is ahead of the game on this one? And also if you if you believe they are. I, do you know what? I don't, I don't really know. I think that, you know, traditionally AWS was definitely there. You know, it was one of the front runners. So there's a lot of history involved there. And I was think, thinking about it and thinking, well, maybe there is a part of that which is to, due to different companies joining together. So you're talking about having presence in, in the two different clouds. So if you have acquisitions and so on that are running things in different areas, you know, then, then sometimes it's not necessarily an easy thing to just migrate them to the other cloud. That's That's one example, I guess. And the other thing is that each of these clouds you know, traditionally have had, what's the best way to say it, so their expertise, as it were. So, for instance, Google is is very much, you know, data analytics. That's their forte. And so sometimes someone may want that, but then they also want to have the other pieces. So AWS is great for developers. You know, there's a huge development community there where they like to use that platform. So it may be that they're just piecing those things together, which kind of leads into that multi-cloud approach as well. So I think that's probably, they're the things that I could think of, really. Well, you, you did mention that you are more focused on, on Azure as a cloud provider. However, one of the other questions I get a lot is, especially on, on clients that they're partially in the cloud, they're worried that when they're talking to a vendor to start assessing their current data hosting landscape, they will say, oh, because you're already in with Microsoft, let's say, it makes sense for you to move everything else to Microsoft. But maybe they, that may not be the answer. Right. So it may mm. be we, we, they should be thinking about a multi-cloud scenario or maybe they should be thinking about moving on-prem to cloud or also cloud to cloud and end up everything with, I don't know, with um, GCP, for example. So mm. what is your view on the on the multi-cloud? And, and also, do you do you get this concern from your clients when you're in the assessment phase? Yeah, I, I think that multi-cloud, you know, it has its benefits, it has its uses. So, you know, when you're having multi-cloud, you are splitting out that risk profile perhaps that's that's one good use for a multi-cloud also like i say each of them has their own benefits and the ways that they run 
and the, the workloads that you can run within them. So it's sometimes nice to, to be able to leverage each of those things. And so you can get the benefits of all the worlds. So that, that's one example. I think moving cloud to cloud, you know, that's, an, that's another thing which we've seen. We've seen happen. We've seen happen in both directions. Well, I say both directions, AWS, Azure and Azure AWS. So, it, and it often depends on what, like I say, what workloads they're running and how they're utilizing the platform. If they're a fairly simple infrastructure, if they have a very fairly simple infrastructure and they're already using Office 365 for certain SaaS offerings like Exchange Online and SharePoint, then sometimes it does make sense to combine them. And it would be the same in the other direction if they're using it for, if they're using AWS. So just purely from a licensing point of view, each of these cloud providers, they're trying to get people in to use their products. And there is incentives to do that. And they, they start making the offerings and they will then bundle it in. So they'll say, okay, well, we'll offer you, for a great example of that is remote desktop with Microsoft. So they've bundled it in and they've said, okay, if you've got a particular license, you can use the remote desktop. Now, for a lot of people, if they're on a very simple infrastructure, they would look at that and say, okay, so that means we don't pay for remote desktop. Yeah, that makes sense to us. You know, the, we don't pay licenses for them, so therefore we will take them for that as well. So that, there is a lot of that as well. It's just, just just trying to figure out what's best. And you say, how do how do we approach the clients? I think the biggest thing is just to, again, is just understand what they're doing so that we can try and identify the best solution for them, whichever cloud that be in. Okay. Another question just popped in that, again, it came through a conversation with a client a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about this client was partially in the cloud, and uh, he did mention the constraints that come with the legacy infrastructure. Will you mind to share with our audience what is the definition of legacy infrastructure and the role that it plays when defining the overall migration or optimization strategy? And also, if you can think of any examples of uh, prior engagements where actually this the legacy infrastructure has played a key role in defining the overall plan. Yeah, of course. So legacy infrastructure in general is anything that, that is running that is unable to be either modernized or run on a modern stack or a modern an OS. So you can think of that either being a particular system. So for instance, a finance system that can only run on an old you know, Sun OS or something like that, or even a piece of hardware less seen in our particular industry. But if, if, for instance, if you have a piece of hardware, which is interacting with some printers or tooling or, you know, machinery or something like that, where it's not possible to then migrate that into a cloud or virtualized environment. So that would be considered some sort of legacy, either um, software or legacy hardware. And as I sort of just mentioned there, the, the limitation is that you can't get that into a virtualized or cloud native format or even a cloud hosted format. That becomes important because most people are trying to realize the benefits that we've spoken about. And if they're trying to move all of their you know, physical infrastructure from, from a site office or something like that to the cloud, there would still have to be that limitation to be able to provide access back to those legacy systems. So if we take the first example, if you have a finance system which has to still be run on a particular hard piece of hardware in your office, you still have to then think about, okay, so we need you know, firewalls to connect in and out of that office. We need to protect that data. We need you know routing between there and the clouds and so on. So that all pans into your migration strategy and the design that you put out to the client. Okay. 
It's incredible how quickly time flies when you're having fun. So let me ask you one last question. And this is based on a conversation which I was having with a friend of mine, so not a client, but he was mentioning that his entity, his the organization he, he works on, just finished uh, migrating to the cloud. They had roughly 10 applications and it was pretty much everything was on-prem. It went to the cloud. I think he did mention Microsoft. And everything pretty much could be lifted and shifted. There was very little refactoring involved. But listening to him, it looks like it was a bit of a painful journey. He alluded that maybe there was a gap on the on the project managing side of things. And especially because they didn't have any in-house resources that will understand what involves managing a project of this caliber. So I don't know if you have encountered in the past with your clients that yes, you bring all your tech support, your heavy lift, you bring some project management, but they still need to be able to manage this in-house. Do you see your clients struggling? Do you think that they need extra support? So I think, you know, in a previous roles, for instance, where, you know, cloud or public cloud was in its infancy, I, I would agree we, we did see that problem. You know, the expertise wasn't out there. The understanding of how these things hang together wasn't there, particularly from the project management side. But I guess that's why we find that a lot of clients want to engage with Portfolio BI is that we have that experience. So our, our project management uh, team has that experience of, of providing those cloud migrations, whether it be data or systems infrastructure. And, and that allows them to support the clients. Now, it, depending on the size of that client, they may then want their own management team as well. And I think that that's, you know, again, where PBI's management team or project management team can assist them and support them with it and, and give them a bit of an understanding of, of, of the processes that we have to go through. So it's difficult because primarily when we're engaged in projects, you know, our project management team are, are working with the clients. We're not necessarily working directly, technically with the client. We have the assistance of the, the project managers as well to to make sure that we're on track and we're delivering the, the the pieces that we need to. Thank you. Well, I could be asking you questions for another half an hour, but I think I'm going to let you be a free man again. Thank you very much. It has been fantastic to have you on the show. Definitely a lot of knowledge shared. This opens even more questions I want to to ask and more questions uh, that I'm sure our audience will be, will be thinking, oh, I want to know about this too. But yeah, yeah but... We will continue recording this series and hopefully keep resolving and answering the questions that we, we keep getting from the audience. Anything you would like to add before we say goodbye? No, just thank you very much for having me, Roshni. Well, thank you very much. Chris has been absolutely phenomenal. So good to hear first had opinions of people that have been doing this for a long time. Professionals that were in this field from pretty much the beginning of the cloud. Once again, we have learned about key points that we need to consider if moving or optimizing the cloud is in the agenda. Or maybe it wasn't in your list of things to do. But now that you have listened about the benefits of being more and more cloud efficient, you may want to reconsider it. And I don't know about you, but I found especially interesting listening Chris' views on data protection and how clients and regulators see this matter. What's up? being used for commercial purposes without any data tracking? Hmm, definitely want to look into in more detail. Well, before I go, let me remind you that Penn is here to help you resolve any questions you might have. Even if it's a quick chat or to discuss with us your organization's journey through the cloud, the Penn Data and Technology Team is here for you.
Bye for now.